0: This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information.
1: Astronomy Cast, episode 177 for Monday, February 15th, 2010. Mysteries of the Milky Way, Part 2. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today. And with me is Dr. Pamela Gaya, professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hi, Pamela. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. How are you doing?
1: Very well. So we're going to continue on with our uh, tour through the mysteries of the Milky Way. We survived our first group of mysteries, so now we move on to our second set of stuff of amazing Milky Way mysteries. How many spiral arms does our galaxy have? And why does everything keep dying every 60 million years ago or so? All right, well, let's move on to the first mystery, which is how many arms, how many does our spiral galaxy have? Is it four? Is it two? Is it 20? How many do we have?
0: It it depends on what color you look at the universe in.
1: Right. But so we look out we look out into the universe and we see spiral galaxies with these beautiful arms and there's a there's a bunch of different kinds, right?
0: Yeah. There there's the sunflowery ones that we call flocculent spirals that You can tell they're spiral, but their arms aren't well-defined. It's just a whole bunch of basically spiraling together petals. There are beautiful grand design spirals like M51 that clearly have two distinct arms. There are systems that appear to have many clear arms, but they don't all make it to the center of the galaxy.
1: And those barred spirals where there's a big bar in the middle and then the spiral arms twist out of that bar... And as we talked about in in a previous episode, right, the arms aren't actually, they're not actually there.
0: No, they're just collections of stuff that gravitationally piled together.
1: But they're a density wave. The density wave is moving through the galaxy. And so, so everyone gets to take their turn being part of the spiral arm.
0: Right. And the issue is, as you look at galaxies in different colors, how prominent the arms are, changes. This is why typically anyone who does galaxy arm classifications is supposed to look at the galaxy in one particular color of light and make all their decisions based on how the galaxy appears in just that one color. But as we start looking at things in ultraviolet, as we start looking at things in infrared, as we start looking at things in radio, the morphology, the shape of Galaxies changes and in our own galaxy as we look out trying desperately to figure out what it is that we live inside of If we look out in radio, we start seeing all sorts of different clumps. We see what looked like well it, it, To the group of scientists who looked at it Evan Levin um, Evan Levine rather Leo Blitz and Carl Hiles out at University, of California, Berkeley They saw in radio what looked like four different arms winding away And then at the same time, if you instead look at the galaxy in star counts, if you look at it using Sloan Digital Sky Survey, we reduce our galaxy to a bar with two distinct arms. And so it all depends on what color you look at. And so we have to try and put together a piece of, well what would it look like if we could get a good distance away, look down on it properly, and then only see it in blue light to give it the same type of classification we might give M51 or Andromeda? So only in blue light? Well, that's, that's how we're, you're supposed to do it. That way everything is nice and symmetric. the The problem is... Dust obscures things. So in some cases, when you start looking at galaxies in colors that either highlight where all the star formation is, like ultraviolet, or allow you to look through the dust, like infrared, you start being able to see structure that you can't see when you look at it in nice, normal, blue-filtered, B-filtered light. And so the color matters because it determines what you can and can't see.
1: And so if we were to look at our galaxy from far away with that blue light, how many spiral arms do we have?
0: Probably, probably two and some fragmenty things wanting to be arms.
1: That's that's amazing that they could figure that out. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, you're standing in the middle of your house and you don't know what color your house is, and you're like, quick, what color is your house? And you're like, well, I can see a reflection of my house off that window from that other house. So I think it's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's white, but yes. I can't really tell. Yeah, right. that's amazing that they can do that. So.
0: And, and we still can't see the other side, so there could be chunks of arm that we can't see.
1: All right, well, let's move on to our next question, our next mystery. Where are all of our sibling stars? so where are all the stars that formed out of the solar nebula with us and i guess we can see right we can see when we look we look out in space we can see star clusters at various points right there's these these nebulae like the orion nebula these you know star forming the carina nebula the star forming regions and then we can see these open clusters of 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 stars where there's You know, a large collection of stars, like there's the Pleiades, where they're still kind of together, and they're surrounded by some nebula material, and then these wider open clusters, and then they break apart, and they're completely gone. So, where are all of our sort of siblings? We don't know. Should we be able to see them? Is that, you know, is that puzzling that we can't see them, or is it just normal to expect that after 4.6 billion years, you won't be able to see the stars that you formed
0: with? Like all siblings, you go through a period of not liking to talk to one another. The problem is with stars, you never get past that period. (laughs) Initially, everything starts out bound together in a nice knit. Star forming region where you still have wisps of dust spanning from one object to another as they all collapse together and warm up their star forming region. But over time, they blow away the dust. And over time, as they orbit around the center, the objects that are closer to the center of the galaxy race forward. And those that are further out from the center lag behind. And the entire system stretches out until eventually you're spread out over such a distance and you're mixed together so much with other stripped away, torn apart open clusters that you can't tell just by looking at motions necessarily who began with whom. The best way to start looking for siblings is to very carefully analyze the chemical composition of stars. Look to say, okay, our sun had to have been born out of a star-forming region that had this particular chemical composition, and try and find stars that exactly match it. But more than one thing can match with an error. And so it starts to get challenging to say, okay, I know this star isn't one I was born with. Its composition is completely wrong. But these over here, maybe? And then you start recreating their kinematics, recreating their motion around the Milky Way. And you have to do both parts. You have to first look at the chemical composition and then recreate the motion. And then you can say maybe, but you can never say anything more than maybe.
1: It's kind of similar to the way that we've discovered, or we, astronomers have discovered, tidal tales of other galaxies that have been destroyed by the Milky Way, where you can see this stream of stars that are separated, but they all have very similar, they have a very similar direction, and they, in many cases, have a similar chemical composition. And so you're going to say, oh, those used to be together
0: and they all have the same age.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so at some point those all got you know brought in together as part of as part of the Milky Way. But we can't seem to find our our how but how far apart could they get over the the 4.6 billion years? I mean, could we could our sibling stars be on the other side of the galaxy at this point?
0: Yeah, they could. And that's the thing, is we could have fully ringed around the galaxy over time and interacted with other stars, flung some of our siblings out towards the outer parts of the galaxy. All sorts of different things are possible over this many years. And so it's a challenge. All we can do is, is guess and say, this one could be, but dating a star... Figuring out how old it is, is an imprecise science. And because there are so many different interactions that are possible, it, it's hard to say with certainty that these two objects have been traveling in similar ways.
1: Hmm. And it's like the there's too many stars that look just too similar to us. It's really hard to say, oh yeah, absolutely, two peas in a pod. And there's the third one, and there's the fourth one, all in this big long line. That would be you know, in controversial evidence, but in this case, it's, it's too squishy. It's too hard to tell. Yeah. Right. That's a hard one.
0: Yeah. And it's only every 225 million years that we go around. So we've gone around a whole lot of times.
1: Not a lot though. I mean, we've only been around, you know, a handful, a few dozen times since the the Milky Way, till the sun formed. I find that quite amazing that we've only been around. It's like what, 220 million years or something like that? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, 225 million. Yeah, yeah. So we've only, you know, we've only been around a a handful of times. All right. Well let's move on to our next mystery. So why does everybody keep dying every sixty million years?
0: I love the way you phrase that. Yeah. Everyone dies every 60 million years. Great. Everybody's dead again.
1: <laughs> Is it 60 million years again? Yeah. So yeah. so we have these extinction events where like clockwork-ish, every 60-ish <laughs> <62-ish> million, <laughs> 60, 65 million years, we have a mass extinction event where 90 percent of life on earth is destroyed
0: yeah this this was a very disturbing result again to come out of the University of California Berkeley people
1: thanks Berkeley <laughs> <laughs> yes yes we get it we get it the universe <laughs> trying to kill us but I mean the last big one right was the was the one that killed the dinosaurs that happened oh you know 65 million years ago so in fact we should be due shouldn't we
0: we we are coming up
1: we're due you know, give or take a few million years. So, okay, so so is this true? Is that for sure happening?
0: Yeah, this this is work that came from Richard Mueller and his graduate student, Robert Rohde. And they went through the marine records. They went through all of the fossil records, measuring, counting, carefully keeping track of when did all of the extinctions occur. And it's every 62 million plus or minus 3 million years. And it's just like clockwork. Everything dies. And that's never a good thing to discover, Mm -hmm. but it's what they found. And so people have been trying to figure it out. We know that we tend to get hit with things, asteroids, comets, stuff like that. This explains the extinction event at the cretaceous tertiary dinosaur extinction boundary 65 million years ago or so, making it due for death again at any moment. And so the question is, why? Why does this keep happening? And one of the things that's getting looked at is our solar system basically bounces its way around the galaxy. And as it orbits and orbits and orbits, it essentially goes up and down through the disk. And it's thought that as it goes through higher density and lower density areas, perhaps one of two different things is happening. Either we're getting bombarded with more cosmic rays, which is bad for life and causes mass extinction. Or by going through higher density areas, it's causing more asteroid infall. It's causing more comet infall. And perhaps that's causing death, destruction, extinction. But we're not exactly sure what it is, but we're on the right track. And knowing that things die every 62 million years is at least the start to preventing death at any moment.
1: Right, so we can imagine like a warped record going around a record player, uh, if anybody still remembers what a record is <laughs> <laughs> we need a new need a new analogy it 's like a warped c d um and so it 's like a warped xbox three hundred sixty game do you kids know what i 'm talking about going around the and and as the and so the sun is like it 's bobbing up and down in in the disc of the milky way and so when it reaches the top it almost kind of pops out of the disk of the milky way and gets exposed to too much cosmic radiation from the rest of the universe and then and and is that fairly solid science is is our milky way actually protecting us from cosmic rays
0: it's one set of research papers
1: right so it's like the milky way has a great big magnetic field all of its own or like a you know its own that's able to protect us, or gas and dust and stuff like that.
0: Which paper you read gives slightly different results. This is all completely new science. That's what's so cool about this. It was only back mm-hmm. in 2005 that the 62 million year cycle was discovered. And so now we're going backwards and trying to figure out, okay, what's the cause? What's the cause? And we don't have enough data. And so we're looking at models. Mm-hmm. We're trying to use models where we don't necessarily have all the measurements we want to reconstruct what's going on. So there's conflicting theories,
1: right? And then that flip side is, as the sun bobs down into the the galactic plane, it gets to more dense areas, and then and then that jiggles up all of the Oort cloud and all the asteroids around us, and and we we get hit by more of them.
0: And as it passes in and out of arms, as it passes in and out of high density areas, mm-hmm. all of these things are getting looked at and blamed currently. Right. We're due, and
1: we're due. But you know, don't worry about that. Don't think about
0: that. <laughs> well, and if you if you read the literature, we're actually undergoing one of the highest rates of extinction ever measured.
1: Yeah, but that's kind of our fault, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. We do things to frogs yeah. and stuff like that.
1: Wait, oh my God! Yeah, it's it's one of those that like the Twilight Zone, right? Where they're like, yeah, you know, it was us. It was man was the most dangerous animal. <laughs> it <laughs> yes. wasn't the universe trying to kill us at all. No, the universe is trying to kill us. All right, so let's move on to our next mystery. So where are all the G-dwarfs? What's a G-dwarf?
0: It's a nice, happy, normal, regular hydrogen-burning star that should still be around no matter when it was formed. These are nice, happy, long-living objects.
1: So these would be a little smaller than the sun? A little less massive than the sun? Yeah. And so should have a little longer lifespan than the sun? Yeah. And smaller stars are more common than bigger stars. Do you follow my line of reasoning here?
0: Yeah. So
1: there should be more of these small, longer lived stars than the larger stars, and yet there aren't.
0: Right. And, and our sun is actually one of these G type stars. But it's even stars smaller than this that are missing. there there should be we start noticing it with the G dwarfs. As we look around, our, our sun still has five billion years to go. We're a nice, happy metal-rich star able to form planets, all sorts of really cool stuff. Now, stars that formed in the first moments of the universe, G stars forming in the first moments of the universe should be just barely on their way out in some cases, 13.7 plus or minus 0.2 billion year old universe. Sun-like stars live 10-ish billion years on the main sequence. We're not seeing them. And the problem is you'd expect to see these stars that have almost pure hydrogen-helium atmospheres that haven't been polluted by supernova. We call these population three stars. And we don't. We look around, we see plenty of metal poor stars out in the globular clusters, out in the halo. But they've still got some iron in them. They've still got titanium in them. They've still got metal. It's just not a lot. And we don't know where the things without metal is.
1: So there should be a, a group of stars that formed right after the Big Bang from the primordial hydrogen and helium created in the Big Bang, but yet weren't large enough to detonate a supernova, they should have just been happily plugging away for, you know, 13.7 billion years, only halfway through their lifespan. And we should see these. Yeah. And we
0: see none? None. We we haven't found a pop three star yet. We've so, found things that come close, but we haven't actually found a pop three star yet.
1: So... But and there should be like pop three red dwarfs everywhere, right? And we don't see any of those either. Yeah. So there's so so clearly that idea is incorrect. That there that there that there something different happened. It was not like you yeah, had the primordial hydrogen. It collected in the stars of varying sizes. The biggest ones detonated as supernova. The smallest, the biggest one, or, you know, other ones have died as as white dwarves. There should be a pile of stars out there. In fact, like the vast majority, right? When you think about the vast majority of stars are red dwarves. The vast majority of stars out there should be these ones left over from the primordial hydrogen. But to find none?
0: I I wouldn't go so far as the vast majority. Because the the problem is there's this (laughs) problem where... Little stars form last. It takes them longer to crunch down. It takes them longer to gravitationally collapse. So the really big stars, the, the ones that blow up as nuclear bombs in a matter of a few million years, they form first. So they do live and die before the littlest stars have a chance to be born. But there should be stars in between. There Mm -hmm. should be these intermediate mass ones. And we don't know how much mass was tied up into the very first generation of star formation. The universe was still collapsing. It was still forming structures. It was still just basically neutral hydrogen gas everywhere until that very first generation started to go supernova and ionize everything. Now, the problem is, how do we get none, And so when we try and understand none, the way we get to none is to say, well, maybe when stars are made of only hydrogen and helium with no metals, they have difficulties doing basic forms of radiating light that need the metals. You get cooling when you have metals involved, maybe without the metals there to radiate in specific lines. You only get giant stars. And that's the explanation that we work from is in a pure hydrogen helium environment, you get giant stars that don't exist in the modern universe because now we have metal. That's one explanation. And the other explanation is the first stars were so giant that they lived and died before any small stars could form. So you didn't Mm. have any G dwarfs. You didn't have anything capable of still being alive today that formed before the first generation of supernovae.
1: And those first stars polluted all the remaining material with their metals.
0: Yeah, so you can find things that have evidence of one or two super- supernovas of infecting them, but you don't have things that have zero supernova infecting them.
1: Right. It's a mystery. Yep. All right. I think this will be our last mystery for the day, which is where are the intermediate black holes? So the intermediate mass black holes, we've got the stellar mass black holes that come from stars exploding. We've got the supermassive black holes that come from, you know, millions and millions of stars worth of mass coming together. But why is there very little in between? You would think that you would have stars be putting together, creating larger objects, black holes merging together, collections of stars collapsing down together, or maybe even some of those, as we talked about, those, those monster stars in the beginning. Maybe they would only have 100 times the mass of the sun or 1,000 times the mass of the sun, but we don't see that at all. So why not?
0: We don't know. <laughs> This, this is probably going to be one of the most boring mysteries. Uh, yeah, stellar-mass black holes. We get them. We find them. They're sitting there in binary systems waiting for people to discover them and watch gravitational radiation take place and get Nobel Prizes. Mm-hmm. Life is good. We see them in the centers of galaxies as supermassive black holes, and maybe someday someone will get a Nobel Prize for that. But there was two different research teams that argue about it, so who knows. But intermediate-mass black holes... Well, we tried looking in globular clusters. They looked like a good place. Didn't find any. We've tried looking in dwarf galaxies. Maybe these little tiny systems will support littler supermassive black holes, intermediate black holes. You get
1: a dwarf galaxy's version of a supermassive black hole. (laughs)
0: Right. Right. And the thing is, we haven't found any there either. You look at systems like the Ursa Minor Dwarf spheroidal Galaxy, and it basically looks like a... Poofed out globular cluster that happens to still have a little bit of gas if you look at it in the radio. So these things thus far just aren't being found. It's one of the frustrations. We know that somehow they have to exist. Uh, somehow you get from stellar mass black holes to supermassive black holes. We just haven't figured out where and how.
1: Mm-hmm. But haven't there been some hints at them? In, in yeah. the last few years, there's been a couple of, you know, intermediate black hole, mass black hole, finally ma- found, <laughs> you know.
0: Right. There, question there mark? Are in,
1: <laughs> finally found?
0: <laughs> there, there are cases in ultraluminous X-ray sources where when we look at nearby galaxies, you see these things that appear to be 100 to 1,000 solar masses that are giving off a lot of X-ray light. And so they seem to be associated with star clusters in some cases. And maybe these ultraluminous X-ray sources that we're seeing with Chandra and other missions, maybe those are going to turn out to be intermediate black holes. But right now we don't have the evidence of things whipping around them close enough to them that says only a black hole could sit here. And it's that... Extra little bit of data that we're missing that makes it hard for us to definitively say yes, we found them. Some no, we've we found things that might be them. Maybe, maybe we don't know.
1: Right, right, right. Because if you can calculate the orbit of the object moving around, that'll tell you with incredible precision what its mass is. Right. And and we just don't see that, and so we can't we can't know for sure.
0: So there is a mysterious object that it's a black hole that we. Well, we think it's a black hole. Um, It's a high density object in a cluster of seven stars that's a little over a thousand solar masses, and it's in the core of our own Milky Way. But it's still a far cry to go from the thousand solar masses of this object up to the tens of thousands of solar masses that we see in the centers of galaxies.
1: Hmm. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. All right and i think that's all of our mis- all our time for mysteries today. So next week we might have run out of milky way mysteries and we'll move on to cosmology mysteries. Who knows? It's a mystery. <laughs>
2: all right. Well, thanks a lot, Pamela, and we'll talk to you next week.
0: Sounds good. Talk to you later, Fraser.
2: This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Cain and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax-deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. AstronomyCast is produced at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville with generous support from Universe Today.